You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dermot Wheeler from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled, When the Blast of War Blows in Our Ears, Military Men in Lichenophily circa 1547 to 1580. Um, following Crown intervention into the territories of Leishenofly and the quelling of a major O'Moore and O'Connor rebellion in the late 1540s, the new administration, upon instructions from London, began to implement a strategy which they hoped would secure both areas permanently for the Crown. Following mixed success with the policy of surrender and regrant, Anthony St. Ledger's successor, Sir James Croft, was instructed in May 1551 to, quote, possess, survey and let Leishenofly and transform both regions into one or two shires. Following incessant delays, both territories were officially shired in 1556 and renamed Kings County and Queens County in honour of the two monarchs, with a military administration put in place. This new administration was overseen by the Lord Deputy, essentially the Royal Commander in the field and the man entrusted with the enforcement of military discipline amongst his troops entrusted to carry out his instructions on the ground at a local level were essentially four groups of officers, according to rank. Justices of the peace, seneschals, sheriffs and constables. As the actions, policies and tenures of the various Lord Deputies have been discussed elsewhere in works such as Ciarán Brady's The Chief Governors, my talk will instead focus on the military men who primarily settled in the area and exercised these local governmental roles in the period of circa 1547 to 1580. Over the course of the talk, I will explain the roles these men undertook and attempt to address the question of whether or not these men were dutiful and loyal Crown officials, or if they were simply violent and corrupt individuals exercising martial law without restraint and primarily concerned with their own financial gain, as has been argued by a number of historians. The first local governmental role one comes across is that of the constable. In November 1551, King Edward informed the then Lord Deputy, Sir James Croft, that the new shires of Kings County and Queens County and their principal forts of Phillipstown and Maryborough respectively were to be each assigned a constable. These men were essentially commanders of garrison castles or fortifications and usually commanded small bands of roughly 25 to 80 footmen. Sir James Croft viewed constables as an integral part of maintaining peace in their respective districts, as long as they were not granted powers of martial law, realising it would only serve to isolate and aggravate the Gaelic locals. In 1563, evidence arises of justices of the peace acting within both territories for the first time. JPs were considered an essential component of Tudor local government. They were regarded as the social superior of the constable and the front line of justice, control and law enforcement, possessing within their own localities the authority of their monarch. JPs were predominantly wealthy, ambitious and well-educated, with their primary role revolving around ensuring that the constables did their job. In Ireland, at least... JP's primary role was to maintain the peace and to assist the sheriff with construction of roads and the organising of resistance to counter-raids. In Leishenofly, they were instructed to, quote, make war upon any invading enemy or rebel with fire and sword, maintain peace, take musters and arrays of the inhabitants and cess them for defence. 
punish the disobedient with fine and imprisonment and execute any captured rebels by martial or common law. The final two posts of Seneschal and Sheriff were first referenced following Sir Henry Sidney's appointment to the position of Lord Deputy in 1565. Seneschals were essentially royal officers, all previously men of military experience with little expertise in law and entrusted with the control of administration and justice. Post was largely filled by planter captains who were granted powers of martial law and expected, and expected or entrusted to defend and regain the territories of Leishenophily if need be. Sydney considered seneschals vital in both territories, as he hoped that they would, quote, keep these areas in obedience and administer justice, not permitting the Breton law to be used. Seneschals were also expected, in conjunction with the sheriff, to punish by all means all rebels, quote, in life, limb, whipping, or other punishment. In April 1566, Sydney stressed the Privy Council that it was imperative that sheriffs be appointed immediately in both territories, so that cases under common law could be determined. Sydney's urgent appeal to the council is not surprising, considering that, in England at least, sheriffs were considered the main shire officer and an essential link between central and local government. Predominantly considered the subordinate of the seneschal, sheriffs were granted military, judicial and administrative powers and were largely expected to clear passes through Gaelic terrain, organise defence against Gaelic raids and to assist with the general hosting. Now that the four positions have been explained, I will attempt to answer the question of whether or not these men conducting these roles in Leishenophily were effective and dutiful servants of the Crown during this period, or if they were essentially violent and corrupt officers of martial law, primarily concerned with their own financial gain. The first captain we come across as having conducted a significant position in both territories was William St. Lowe, who became Lieutenant of both Fort Protector and Fort Governor in 1548. St. Lowe was born into a wealthy Anglo-Norman family in Somerset in circa 1520. His father, Sir John St. Lowe, served in Ireland during Silkel Thomas's rebellion 1534-35 and was appointed Marshal of the King's and Ruley Army there on the 30th of April 1535. Sir John set a strong example for his son to follow as a dutiful servant of the Crown and was quite clear from the sources that he was also a proficient soldier. Upon his appointment as Lieutenant of both forts in Leishenophily in 1548, William St. Lowe quickly gathered significant praise and recognition from the government for his actions against the remnants of Brian and Caharu O'Connor's rebellious forces following their uprising in both territories in the latter half of the 1540s. According to the then Lord Deputy Sir Edward Bellingham, William was both, quote, highly responsible and efficient in his role and actions. In early January 1549, William was commended for having finally brought peace to the Leash countryside. According to Henry Wise, one of St. Lowe's subordinate captains in Leash, quote, disturbances to the peace, both inside and outside Fort Protector, were rare and swiftly dealt with, and robberies were practically non-existent in the surrounding towns or countryside. Crucially, much like his father before him, St. Lowe managed to maintain order and instill discipline amongst his troops by ensuring that the soldiers had sufficient provisions, thus avoiding any mutinies, and ensuring that any, quote, drunkenness or misdemeanours among the officers was promptly rectified. Accordingly, St. Lowe was well, re well rewarded, rewarded by the King for his dutiful actions and was bestowed with a seat on the Irish Privy Council in 1548 and a knighthood in 1549. Although he departed the Midlands Territories at some stage in 1549 in order to serve as one of Princess Elizabeth's chief attendants, his commitment and dedication to his job not only ensured that Fort Protector and Fort Governor survived their initial years, but also solidified them as the two most formidable Crown strongholds of the respective territories. By the early to mid-1560s, we know that constables, seneschals and sheriffs operated on a consistent base in Leishenophily. Basis in Leishenophily. By 1565, in fact, all three roles were exercised by two men in particular, Francis Cosby and Henry Cowley. Both men had served as JPs for their respective territories from as early as 1563. 
Cosby family originated in Hermiston, Lincolnshire, with Francis Cosby being born sometime around 1510, the second son of John Cosby and his wife Mabel Agard of Great Leek, Nottinghamshire. His early career was predominantly spent alongside his brother Richard, serving in the army, most notably in the Low Countries, during Henry VIII's reign. In 1549, he appealed to Queen Mary for permission to plant and leash, and eventually became part of the committee which shared the region. Having been appointed General of the Kern in 1558, he led a successful and daring counterattack that prevented an O'Moore and O'Connor coalition force from seizing Maryborough in June of that year. He settled in the fort itself by 1560 and eventually established his family seat at Strabley. Cosby's counterpart in Offaly, Henry Cowley, was the son of the prominent old English lawyer Walter Cowley and a grandson of Robert Cowley, the English-born master of the roles in Ireland during Henry's reign. The family appears to have moved quite a bit throughout Ireland, primarily settling in Watford, Dublin and Kilkenny. But when Henry's father served as a member of the commission, which surveyed Offaly in the early 1550s, the family were subsequently granted land there. Cowley was granted additional land under Elizabeth in 1562-63 in the King's County, primarily around Edenderry. The terms of his grant were quite clear. Besides living on the premises, Cowley was expected to carry out the constable's instructions to the fullest, use the English language and dress, and to rule as far as he reasonably could. The Queen's decision to appoint both men the authority to conduct several roles in Leach and Offaly provided Cosby and Cowley with a significant degree of independence. Cosby was said to have relished his role to such a degree, in fact, that he erected a gallows near his residence in Strabley, where he would hang his unfortunate victims alive in chains, placing a loaf of bread just out of reach of the tortured soul, watching as they suffered an excruciating death from starvation. Cosby also concerned himself with the expansion of his own personal land holdings for the majority of his tenure in the Queen's County. During the chaos which ensued, during the 1570s in particular, Cosby purchased any departing land, departing settlers' land, at a reduced price, um, thus expanding his holdings to near 4,000 acres by the end of his career. It was also alleged that he collaborated with the notorious rebel Rory O'Gamour in the running of mutually beneficial protection rackets. As early as 1565, Cosby was being investigated over his embezzlement of military funds. However, he managed to evade any serious penalties for his actions. 1572, at the height of Rory O'Gamour's Midlands insurrection, the new English captain was heavily criticised, quote, for the loss of leash and for his apparent inability to do his job, having allowed his terror to become, quote, far out of order, and having used no justice against offenders. It was quite clear that Cosby's primary goal throughout his career was to financially benefit from his time in the Queen's County as much as possible, which undoubtedly worked to the detriment of the government's aims for the area. Henry Cowley, on the other hand, remained a loyal and dutiful servant of the Queen until his death. Throughout his career, he actively pursued the promotion of English law and the general anglicisation of the King's County. In addition, for the majority of his career, Cowley received the height of praise from his superiors for his diligence and efficiency in maintaining law and order in Offaly, particularly during the more tumultuous periods in the territory. Fitzwilliam in particular stated that Cowley is, quote, justice with offenders and suffers not the rebels nor any of their race to possess anything in this country. In fact, during the chaos which ensued during Ruriog's uprising, and whilst his counterpart in Leash was busy expanding his land portfolio, Fitzwilliam informed the Queen that Cowley had managed to prevent what he termed great extremities. Sir Henry Sidney referred to the old English captain as, quote, valiant, fortunate, and a good servant, and as good a borderer as I have ever found anywhere. Furthermore, Cowley attempted to promote the Reformation in his local town of Carberry, and suggested the establishment of a schoolhouse for the, quote, greater glory of God and the education of young children. He also requested funds from the Queen in order to construct a church and install a vicar of his choosing who was capable of speaking both Irish and English fluently. 
Despite barely being paid for his role, his land's been overrun with, quote, rebels in every place, and being burned out of his own home on several occasions, Cowley continued to carry out his duties. In fact, we know that he oftentimes recruited additional troops at his own expense in order to keep the King's County in crown hands and to protect its tenants, as well as selflessly pleading for sufficient, sufficient payment for the troops under his command. Grown, quote, into years and unableness of body for the travail of it, Cowley spent the final years of his life as a privy councillor, where his wealth of military experience was unquestionably highly valued by the administration. Both men were in fact collectively praised by Fitzwilliam and Lord Chancellor of Ireland Robert Weston for the building, building and tilling of their land in their areas, quote, in places where there had not been the like for many years. However, it must also be stressed that Cowley was not immune to the enticement of land expansion, with the sources presenting him as a persistent suitor for the majority of his life, holding several estates in both counties Kildare and the King's County. In fact, the competition for land amongst planters had allegedly grown so out of order by 1567 that it was said, quote, that one acre is now more valued than ten war in earlier times. It must be stated, however, that Cowley never neglected his duties whilst pursuing the expansion of his holdings. The same cannot be said for Francis Cosby. Cowley's successor, Edward Moore of Bennett and Kent, was descended from a long line of well-established gentry and travelled to Ireland alongside his brother Thomas at some stage in the early 1560s. Approved for the position of constable as a result of his extensive military experience in the, county, in the country, including multiple expeditions against Turlock Lynnock O'Neill in Ulster, and his notable quote, mere Englishness, Moore immediately waged war on the O'Connor clan upon his arrival in the King's County in 1574. He apparently did such a fine job in his first few years that Fitzwilliam remarked that they, the O'Connors, are fled not only from the King's County, but also from all the borders, both English and Irish adjoining. Fitzwilliam also informed the Queen that Moore had put measures in place to prevent the troublesome Gaelic clan from returning to the area, most notably pledges from neighbouring Gaelic clans and a threat of hanging for anybody found to have harboured or assisted anyone of the O'Connor name. On paper, it would seem that Moore was an effective and dutiful officer. However, it seems the actual situation on the ground was not so clear-cut. Nicholas White, the old English master of the rolls, alleged that Moore was in fact in league with the O'Moores and the O'Connors and warned that, quote, mean men advanced by service to great wealth served the Queen badly. Walter Devereux, first Earl of Essex, also contradicted Fitzwilliam's version of events and stated that the O'Connors were, were still very much a real threat to the area. Having refused the Crown pardon, dispersing briefly and lying upon the borders, biding their time, accompanied by a large rebel force. Moore faced further criticism towards the end of his career, this time from his predecessor, Henry Cowley and the Gaelic loyalist Barnaby Fitzpatrick, who alleged that Moore had in fact encouraged the O'Connors into open rebellion in the first place. The truth of the situation is near impossible to ascertain, but what this incident highlights is the clear disparity between the reports been sent back to London during the chaos of the 1570s and the actual situation on the ground. There is no doubt that Moore and Fitzwilliam were close. In fact, the Lord Deputy had relentlessly campaigned for Moore's promotion in Offaly, even after the Clerk of the Privy Council, Ed Edmund Tremaine, stated that although he showed, no, he showed goodwill towards Moore, quote, the greatness of his demand makes me afraid to hinder others that be more ready. Arguably, Fitzwilliam's report back to London suggests that he was attempting to cover up Moore's shortcomings as constable, most likely guilty and repentant for having nominated Moore in the first place. The level of criticism aimed at Moore from officials of various backgrounds within the administration suggests that he was a largely negligent and ineffective constable. Furthermore, before he had even settled in Offaly, he was known to have pursued posts which, although were located in turbulent areas, offered Moore a greater opportunity for financial reward. For example, his persistent pursuit of monastic lands in Mellifount and Keeling County Loud 
while serving as sheriff there throughout the 1560s. And his opportunistic marriage to Elizabeth Brabazon in 1571 certainly add credibility to this claim. Not to mention the fact that he received the land surrounding Philipstown rent-free whilst constable. Thankfully, the men who conducted the role of, of sheriff appear to have been more concerned with conducting their duties than land expansion. However, that being said, they also paid a heavy price for this devotion and the promotion of Tudor law in their respective districts. Edward Brereton, who served as sheriff of the Queen's County in 1567, was specifically targeted during the Butler Uprising in 1569 and burned out of his, out of his townland in Strabley and his home at Lochteo Castle. In the King's County, Robert Cowley, Henry Cowley's nephew, was considered as dutiful a subject as his uncle had been. He served as JP for the county in 1563 and was so effective at combating rebels in his district of Croton that he was instructed to exercise martial law throughout the King's County, O'Dunn's territory in Leash and even in parts of Westmead, where he brought a contingent of O'Moores and O'Connors to justice for the spoiling of the lands of Gaelic collaborators, such as Owen McHugh O'Dempsey. His actions, however, did not go unnoticed by the Midlands Rebel Coalition and Robert quickly became a targeted man. He eventually paid the ultimate price in July 1573 when he was cornered and killed by O'Connor rebels during the sack of Philipstown. Robert Cowley's counterparts in Leash, Thomas Merrick and his successor Thomas Lambin, also became targeted men following repeated counterinsurgency assaults upon the Amur clan. Quickly realising that they were grossly under-equipped for the task before them, both men were forced to broker a truce with Rory O'Gamour in the early 1570s. During the ceasefire, Merrick and Lambin launched a stinging criticism of Fitzwilliam and his administration. Lambin alleged that he'd been assigned just six men to defend his home at Chain Castle and had practically no gunpowder for Maryborough's defence. To make matters worse, following the accidental death of one of Rory Oak's men outside of Lambin's townland of Morrit in June 1573, O'Moore exacted a terrible revenge upon the settlement, burning it to the ground and slaughtering its inhabitants. Merrick subsequently suffered grievous wounds at the hands of the O'Moores following the collapse of the uneasy truce between both sides in the winter of 1573. Another example, John Barnes, who served as Sheriff of Queen's County in 1578, suffered utter devastation at the hands of the O'Moores and O'Connors whilst in office. In total, he alleged that he had lost both 140 cows, 1,000 sheep and calves, and 126 plough horses, as well as the total burning and spoiling of his tenants. Despite this, Barnes continued to carry out his duties, and upon instructions from the Queen to extend Tudor law in his area, he constructed a castle at his home in Dysart at his own expense. Once again, it was particularly noteworthy that several of the men mentioned received little or no wages from the Crown, nor compensation uh, in certain cases such as, such as Barnes. Crucially, and perhaps more importantly, there is also no evidence to suggest that any of the men mentioned, the sheriffs I mean, were particularly interested in their own financial gain or expansion of their land holdings. Barnaby Fitzpatrick must also receive a mention, considering his uniqueness as the only Gaelic-Irish individual to hold a significant position within the leash offaly administration between the years of 1550 and 1580. Throughout his career, he was a torn on the side of the Moors and O'Connors, crushing their multiple uprisings with ruthless efficiency, such as in 1558 and when acting as chief negotiator for the Crown in 1564, which eventually resulted in a period of relative peace, however brief. He not only seemed disinterested in land expansion, but also appealed for his territory to be officially shired as part of the Queen's County in 1566, quote, for the service of the Queen and the quiet of its inhabitants. However, it must also be stated that this was most likely an attempt by Fitzpatrick to break free from the yoke of Butler oppression, instead of genuine concern with the, the Anglicisation of his, of his territory. Nevertheless, his services were so highly regarded that he was eventually appointed Lieutenant of both Forts and to Lord Deputy Sydney in the year 1576. 
1577, he played a crucial role in decimating the O'Moore and O'Connor clan's fighting capabilities and eventually struck the fatal blow when he hunted down and killed the notorious rebel Rory O'Gamour in 1578, essentially bringing an end to the rebellion in the Midlands. According to Henry Sidney, when offered the £1,000 reward for the rebel's death, he was uh, content to take a mere £100 for the trouble. Finally then, in conclusion, there can be little doubt that the men who undertook the roles of JPs, constables, sheriffs and seneschals were deeply flawed individuals. The image oftentimes put forward by the majority of historians of the period suggests that as a whole, these men were violent, greedy, power-hungry land expansionists who exercised martial law in their respective territories with a particular fervour. Unquestionably, men such as Francis Cosby and Edward Moore add credibility to this claim, providing us with examples of corrupt officers that entered into dubious alliances with rebellious clans and seemed only focused on acquiring and expanding their extensive personal holdings. However, as I hope my paper has shown, with the exception of these two men, local government officials for the most part seem to, be a, seem to have been scrupulous, dutiful and hard-working individuals who attempted to introduce and promote Tudor law and general order in their respective areas. In addition, as already highlighted, several captains selflessly spent their own money and funds on raising additional troops during times of unrest, or constructed castles to ensure the colonies, colonies survived and their tenants were kept safe. It was quite clear, however, that the granting of martial law powers to some of these men had a detrimental effect on government Gaelic relations and the promotion of an expansion of Tudor law. However, as mentioned earlier, there is no evidence to suggest that any of these men, with the exception of Cosby and Fitzpatrick, implemented martial law with a particular fervour or ruthlessness. Finally, I hope that this paper has challenged some of the stereotypes held by a large number of Irish historians relating to English local government officers and has offered an alternative view of a group of men who, for the most part, conducted their roles in the face of overwhelming odds and significant challenges, and without which the Leash Offaly plantation would never have survived into the 17th century. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.